0: (laughs) Oh, that's just a happy thing. All right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, and starting in verse 1, and we continue in our study of this book. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, and this is God's word. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard the uh, marketing slogan, uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, That's quite an old uh, slogan, and it's been used many, many times. It's been used to sell Mother's Day presents. And it's been used to sell Father's Day presents. And it's actually been used to sell Sports Illustrated uh, subscriptions. Uh, It's been used to sell diamonds. Uh, In fact, there have been four attempts to trademark the name. The first one was in 1925 when phonographs came out. And something about phonographs and their components, they they trademarked um, uh, uh, the gift that keeps on giving for a number of years. And it ran out sometime like in the 60s or 70s. And then several other companies have tried to trademark it and they've been denied because it's such a common phrase, and uh, it seems like nobody uh, should own it. So um, it's it's pretty sought after. And in fact, it's also been used negatively uh, uh, concerning like STDs, uh, kind of gross. But uh, indeed, you may have heard that uh, if you were in the army like me, uh, that uh, that it was the uh, the gift that I wasn't the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> um, but, ladies and gentlemen, imagine a blender that never wears out. Imagine. A curling iron that never dies. Imagine a drug that completely rep- repairs a, a problem and uh, never, never to return again. Can you imagine something that would be so complete? Um, on a much more serious note, though, imagine a mode of dealing with personal guilt and uh, individual uh, culpable guilt. Imagine something that would deal with that not only in, the, in an immediate sense, but finally and ultimately in a forever sense. Imagine a gift that would keep on giving in that way. It addresses the problem in the now, but it addresses the problem forever. Um, that's at least a, an intriguing option, isn't it? If you're, if you're thinking about this gospel and you're pondering it in your heart, let's say you're a Christian and you're worshiping or you're a seeker and you're wondering, um, that's at least a compelling thing to think about, isn't it? Something that it would address your guilt and your shame, your conscience in this life, in the now, but forever as well. Um, isn't that better than the other options, which are basically, I don't care, <laughs> Or uh, it's all up to me, I, I, better, uh, I better clean up my life and, and do better. I mean, both of those options really let you down when your head's on the pillow at night and you're all by yourself. So um, let's go to our main idea here today. The main idea is a, a hopeful one, and that is salvation by the Christ is abiding, and let's go to our first sermon point, the first one of three. Hang on a second. Ah, the person who is seated. Now, you get see I get that right from the passage there. Look at verse one. It says, now, the point in what we are saying is this. Now, let's stop there for a second. Um, you got to love that, that that line right there, because the Bible is taking pleasure, the scripture writer is taking pleasure to explain the point. Um, whenever you have something, da 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 colon, that's... That's something that's gonna be really clear and really encouraging. The point is in what we are saying is this. Now, the writer has laid out a case, all right? And he's about to clunk you on the head like Mo. And um, so when he says... The point in what we are saying is this. Let me just share some other Bible translations for you, okay? So if you have the ESV, it says, the point is this, all right? So he's coming to the the head of things. He says, the point is this. Here's some other Bible translations. If you have a King James Version um, or a Young's Literal Translation, it says, the sum, the sum of what I've been discussing is this. Uh, Another one uh, calls it the summit, which I rather like. So the summit, the peak, the pith, the apex. Um, in Matthew Henry's commentary, he says the substance or summary. And so that's the idea behind the wording that we have in the, in the ESV. Uh, we have such a high priest. The point is this. We have such a high priest. Now you can play a, a really wonderful uh, game of emphasis with that first line. The point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Let's, let's look at that for a second. Let's start with the main thing. Um, The sum, all that's been previously said that led us to this point, flip back if you would to chapter 1. What, what kind of high priest is this? Such a high priest. This is the kind of high priest we have. Okay, well, a lot of things are said about this high priest. One of them is in chapter 1, verse 2. Look, uh, uh, actually, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's a good thing. God spoke through mouthpieces. He spoke through people that he designated to carry his word to his people, to carry the oracles of God. Yay. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. I mean, that's pretty, uh, pretty big thing. God has spoken to us by his son, the son of God, Jesus, the living word. Pretty big, pretty big qualification. Look at verse three. This Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, that's pretty, uh, pretty big. And you can see that there's that 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 is it ties very much to our passage here. You've got this high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God. Okay, so the, the argument begins in, the, in the, the beginning of the book and it builds the whole way. And um, uh, look at verse eight of uh, chapter one. Of the son of Jesus, of the son of God, second person of the Trinity, the father says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Skip down to verse 10. God the Father, speaking of God the Son, again, he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. I mean that is a stark claim of the divinity of Jesus. If you don't have the, if you don't believe in the divinity of Jesus, you can't be a Christian. The Bible is so clear about it. And the, and so the, the writer of Hebrews goes on chapter after chapter he says that uh, Jesus the son of God who is God, is greater than the angels. He goes on to say that he's greater than Moses. He goes on to say that he's prior to Abraham, prior to the law, prior to the sacrificial system, prior to the priests. He's the final and saving consummate priesthood. He's the author of salvation himself, itself. And he is the minister of a and culmination of a better covenant. And uh, so, When he says in chapter 8, verse 1, this is the point in what we are saying. We have such a high priest. That's what he's saying. This is the high priest. He is um, not elusive. He is uh, not waited upon. He is such a high priest. Now, let's emphasize another word in that sentence. We have such a high priest. This is the kind of high priest. But look at it. We have such a high priest we have obtained him. He is ours. He is a present hope. He's not some Messiah to come one day. He's not someone that we're just waiting for and, just, and, and, and hoping that the world's going to be fixed. Now, we await his return, but this Messiah has come, and we have him. He's a personal Savior in the now. He addresses the sin problem in the now. Um, he's not just off in the distance. Um, and, you know, um, it, the, the, the fulfillment of God's salvific promises are met in this Jesus, this high priest. He, th- this is the kind of God, priest he is, and we have him. And you know, uh, you don't have to turn, but I just love um, the, the beginning of Acts. I'm already there. Let me just, you know, Jesus ascends, right? In, right, in front of his, uh, right in front of onlooking disciples. He descends. And... Um, they, the, they're looking up, Jesus is lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And by the way, I, I've told you this many times before, but I, I hate when preachers put a, uh, a sarcastic, uh, caustic, uh, acerbic tone on that. You know, like the angels are like, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, because Jesus just went, you know, when the air went up. I mean, would, would you look up? I would. I don't, think they were, I don't think they were being scolded for it. I hate when preachers do that. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. I love that, that statement. This Jesus, all right? You're not waiting for another. This one you know. This one who died, this one who was resurrected, this one who just ascended before your eyes, this Jesus is gonna come back. This Jesus is yours. This Jesus is is victoriously gone up to be with the the Father. And so that's what kind of pulls us back to this passage here. You've got this Jesus of whom these people were witnesses. He is actively reigning and supplying all that is necessary in heaven at the right hand of God. So we have such a high priest... That's what he's like, but we have him too. Aren't those encouraging thoughts? All right, let's emphasize one more word in that sentence. It's the we part. We have such a high priest. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that there's a we means that there's a group of people who don't have Jesus Christ. We have him. That means there are others who don't have him. And make no mistake, the Bible is not unclear. Uh, There are terms to our relationship with God. You know, people love to say things like, um, you know, just out in the the world uh, at large, they'll go, well, you know, God uh, just loves everybody unconditionally. You know what? No, he doesn't. God doesn't love anybody unconditionally ever at any time. Is that a shock to you? You know what the condition is? The condition is, God gets to say how we are to approach him. That's a condition. And, the, and the, the condition is that he has supplied the Lord Jesus Christ. God does love us unconditionally, Christians. He does. But only after the condition's been met. I mean, the condition is Jesus Christ paying the sin debt for us. Now, I don't even like when we say, I don't even like the term, God loves us unconditionally. Um, I would rather say God loves us in Jesus Christ. That seems a lot more healthy and a lot more clear. God loves us in Jesus Christ because that condition's been met. Um, You know, an important Bible word that is used a lot is the word covenant, right? And um, it's used all through the book of Hebrews, a better covenant. And uh, the school that I went to in St. Louis or, you know, took a mail order course from, um, is, it was, is named Covenant. That's the name of the seminary, Covenant. Kind of an important Christian word, Covenant. and um, So what is a covenant? I think that, that spooks a lot of Christians. People hear this word and they go, like, Covenant? Well, it's some kind of a Bible word. And, and it's, it's all often compared to like a, a legal thing, but not so much so, and a marriage and not so much so. But basically a covenant, the simple idea behind a covenant is it defines the terms of a relationship. Pretty good, isn't it? A covenant defines the terms of a relationship. For instance, I am married to Tammy Umloff. Well, there are terms to our relationship. I'm to be exclusively hers. I'm to lay myself down, my self-interest down. I'm, I'm to die to self to minister to her, whatever her concerns are. Even if I think they're important or bonkers or whatever, they're my concerns. And my concerns, whether they're bonkers or whatever they're her concerns. Those are conditions. Those are terms of a relationship. Same thing with employment. I work at Grace Evangelical Church. Well, guess what? There are terms to my employment. Uh, this is an employment situation. I think people get hired at a church and they go, oh, it's just a big party and everybody's just hanging out with the kids and just hanging out and talking and having parties. and stuff. There's, There are terms to my employment. And if I can't meet those terms, then I, I can't work here anymore. There are terms to my employment. That's a terms to, those are terms to a relationship. Well, when it comes to God, our relationship with God, guess who gets to define the terms? God defines the terms. He says, I'm the creator. I made you for my own glory, and this is the way you can come to me. We don't get to say, well, I've always tried to be as good as I can be. That's us defining the terms. Well, you know, God, you got to at least grant me this. And, you know, if you grade me on a curve, I'm really not that bad. That's us defining terms. God defines the terms as to how we come to him. It's very clear in the scriptures. So application for your life is this. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. One of the most alarming statements I can, I can remember was actually not from a covenant professor, but it was years, years earlier from a, uh, an RTS professor where Dr. Young went to school uh, down in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. An RTS professor once said, um, he said, to, to a class full of seminary students, he said, many people worship a Jesus they made up. And I remember being startled by that. I remember going, "Well, did I make up a Jesus? Did I? What, what, I mean, I believe in Jesus. I mean, what do you mean by that?" Uh, oh, and and by the way, he said many people believe in a Jesus they made up, and a Jesus they made up is an idol, and an idol is a counterfeit. Well, that's a pretty powerful quote, isn't it? And it makes you wonder. Well, gosh, well, do I have a made-up Jesus? Is it the real Jesus? Does it affect my salvation? I mean, who, what, what Jesus do I believe in? There's only one Jesus. This one. This one. There's only one Jesus. And um, it's, it's not that he's just a, um, a, a nice guy. Uh, you, could believe in a, um, you could believe in a Jesus who's not God. That would be a counterfeit. And that won't save you. You could believe in a Jesus who is uh, not resurrected. That would be a counterfeit. He won't save you. He's your fake Jesus. You could believe in a Jesus who is uh, merely a good example or a moral teacher. Uh, He's a fake Jesus. You could believe in a Jesus who is not holy, 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 who shares God's attributes in every respect and who will come to judge all things ultimately. You don't believe in that, Jesus. You got a fake. And a fake is an idol. And a fake won't save you. Only this high priest will. Only such a high priest will, if you have him. Um, that's the gospel message. Um, Jesus Christ paid the sin debt that you could not pay. Why couldn't you pay it? You were guilty. You bankrupt, utterly bankrupt, morally, spiritually. Well, what about the good that I feel like? it Well, that's God's common grace. That's his thumbprint made on you as an image bearer. But uh, if God is perfect and you're not perfect... You've got a cosmic and eternal problem. And God remedied it by the one way he could, which is the living Christ. That's the gospel message. Our next point, the activity that supplies. Look at chapter eight, verse one. Um, this is the point we are saying. Uh, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, this uh, idea of one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, we're going to touch that in every single point this morning, this one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Now, first off, throne is um, a very easy to understand word, isn't it? Doesn't matter where you come from, we all know what a throne is. A throne is uh, a symbol, it's a place where a king sits, it's where a king takes up his power and reigns, a throne. Uh, It's a place of rulership and not just any kind of rulership, it's a monarchy, right? Right? So it's not like uh, everybody voted uh, for a king. You don't vote for a king. A king is king. And furthermore, a king's power isn't like our little democracy over here. Um, There's no Supreme Court. The king has final say. If the king says, kill that guy, they kill that guy. If the king says, move the property line, the the property line gets moved. King has sovereign um, royal rule. That's what this is saying is that Jesus has sovereign royal rule in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father. And uh, listen, this is not some kind of a syrupy, sweet way of uh, saying something nice about Jesus. This is, um, this is something that is so outrageous that if you can dismiss this in your heart, then you can go ahead and throw out the whole gospel with it. I mean, if you don't believe in a Jesus who is living and resurrected and ruling dynamically at the right hand of the Father in heaven, uh, holding session, if you don't believe that, well, gosh, you're off the hook. Um, You can leave and go, I don't believe that gospel at all, because that is a component, a key component of this Christ who is living and saving. And this Christianity of ours calls for a faith in the full Christ, not a fragment in Christ, not a nice guy who helps you, not a Jesus who takes the wheel every once in a while when you can't keep the car straight and then you take it back. That's not the Jesus of this book at all. Now, another thing we see concerning the saving activity of Jesus is this. In verse 2, it says that he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, um, just want to touch on this for a second. This true tent uh, statement has been debated over the years. You might like to know. Uh, in fact, John Owen was one of them. And I, I, it's, it's amazing to be up here going, I disagree with John Owen. I do. Um, even though he's got the best of uh, the three bad solutions. Uh, his is, he says... Um, this this true tent idea that that, G, that Jesus ministers in the holy places. We get that. We get that the holy pl- in heaven. Right, he ministers. He he prays for us. He he um, he is interceding. His uh he's he's claiming his finished and accomplished work for our benefit at all times for all eternity. We're safe in him. We can be assured of our salvation. Good stuff. But this true tent idea, John Owen thought that it referred to. The physical ministry of Jesus Christ in His human body. In other words, I think I have this right. I, I think it. He means that um, God was responsible for the incarnation, right? So it's not like we. It's not like some dude just, you know, Sam Brummett grows up and is like, "Boy, Sam sure is a good guy." Hey, You want to be the savior of the world? Come on, get up. Um, I think that's what he's saying. He's like, "This is not man-made. God instigated this whole thing." I think that's John Owen's point. I think. Another view is that some people think that the true tent uh, refers to the church. And, you know, that's kind of a cool idea. You know, we're a gathered people and so on. And other people think that um, true tent is a reference to the Holy Spirit living in the the redeemed. And that's not a bad idea either. And, uh, you know, that has to do with the church as well. But... Isn't it quite simple, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, my goodness, look at it. Chapter eight, 8, verse 1. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. Doesn't it make sense to say, in the true tent, up there, the holy places? I mean, isn't it, doesn't that seem like it's natural thought? And you know it's also deeply steeped in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, um, you know, look at look at verse five real quick. Um, um, they serve, okay, uh, priests here on this earth. Okay, they serve a copy. And a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see the tent, the tabernacle. Uh, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown you on the mountain. I mean, if, that, if the earlier part doesn't connect with that part, then what in the world? It seems like a very natural reading of it. But uh, let, me, let me share this with you too. You know, in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter one, very much uh, focused on the divinity of Jesus, Right? And um, in John chapter one verse fourteen, it says, "The Word—that's with a capital W—the Living Word, the, the Word personified, Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us." That's what the ESV says. "Dwelt among us." Okay, let me read you a couple of translations. Um, the NIV says, um, "The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us." Here's another one. Holman says. Um, the word became flesh and took up residence. Kind of cool. And here's the a, here's a last one I'll share. New Living Translation says, um, the word became flesh and made his home among us. But do you know what a literal translation of that is? Easy to look up. Check it out. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. That just... That just sings in my soul that, that God would have tabernacled with us. And you know that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that that's a reference to, um, you know, it, it's, like, it's like a puzzle piece that, that fits in perfectly. Uh, it's a reference to the, the, the tabernacle. I mean, in the wilderness wanderings, it was, there was a tent, an, an, uh, a temporary structure that moved around. And God would tabernacle in the midst of his people. And then uh, when uh, the kingdom uh, was solidified and the land was subdued and a uh, uh, kingdom was established and a temple was built, it was a permanent structure. But guess what? It was also temporary. It was also an earthly structure where God tabernacled with his people. Well, what we have here is the true tent. We have the actual thing. We have a minister in that true tent in heaven. We have an advocate. We have a voice. We have a savior. We've got a surety. And as Christians, we now have a permanent audience with God, ladies and gentlemen. A permanent audience as beloved children and heirs of the estate. Last point. The service that sustains. Um, Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, listen, we're gonna, be, we're gonna stay in that more next time as we move through the chapter, okay? Um, but I wanna return us to one thought again. Here we go back to the seated high priest in, uh, in verse one. Um, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the Holy places. Now, that he is seated, ladies and gentlemen, has, of course, regal overtones to it, doesn't it? I mean, you've got a king seated on a throne. That's got a royal uh, emphasis, right? Um, But it also has rabbinical overtones because uh, unlike here in... uh, in the Western world, you know, where you stand up to give a report and you stand up to teach, unless you have no knee cartilage, then you sit down. Uh, but uh, in most cases, people are standing and preaching. Well, not in, not in antiquity. The um, teacher would sit, and the students would too, but the teacher would sit and assume posture, the posture of a rabbi or a teacher or a philosopher and an instructor, and the disciples would gather around, and it was kind of like the teacher sits. We're all camping out, we're here for a long time and wisdom is gonna be imparted and uh, you're gonna soak it up and you're gonna glean from this and, and so on. So that, that, that uh, Jesus is seated has, a kingly, has kingly overtones but it has rabbinical overtones too. But the meaning here is greater still that Jesus is seated, has a sense of finality. He has uh, taken up his power and he reigns. He is seated. The work is accomplished. When he said it is finished on the cross, he ascended to God and he took his seat and that work was accepted by the Father and it is finished indeed. He's seated. And that has a real sense of finality to it. Um, Oh yes, it's a more excellent ministry, right? In verse six. Oh yes, it's a more excellent covenant. Oh yes, in verse six. Oh, it's a more excellent promise. Yes, it certainly is. Because the the seated one ministers in all eternity. And the idea is, friends, that he abides in his saving work. He abides. Now, last thing. Um, this is just kind of cosmically awesome that um, there was a quote in here about motherhood <laughs> as I was studying this. I'd like to go, oh, I've mined this thing. Oh, it just popped up in a book I happen to be reading, but... Um, it's kind of a complicated quote. I'm going to, try to, I'm going to try to norm it out a little bit here, but basically it's saying this, that a mother, uh, a woman becomes a mother when she has a child, right? So uh, she's a mom when she's got a child. Um, so she bears a child, and it's not only an indispensable work, you know, to bring life, but it's also a finished work. In other words, for a mom to be a mom It's not like she's given birth every single minute, praise the Lord. And um, so it's indispensable because this child wouldn't have life unless it were given birth. But in giving birth, it's also a finished work, right? It's a finished work. Now, it goes on to say, what the child now enjoys are other complementary ministries of motherhood, which lie beyond the childbearing. So, you got that? And so his point is this. Similarly, with Christ's priesthood, his propitiatory offering is not only an indispensable work, but a finished work. In other words, if you've been born again, you've been born again, and you don't need to keep walking the aisle and walking the aisle and walking the aisle and and rededicating your life you know, I, I said it years ago that, that walking the aisle and walking the aisle and walking the aisle is as ridiculous as walking down the food aisle at the Kroger, um, rededicating your life to store-bought food. I mean, you're in the store. It is available to you. Get the riceroni. It's right there. You don't have to rededicate your life to it. If you're born, you're born indeed. And what you now enjoy, friends, are the privileges of being a son and a daughter. And you enjoy those. You know why? Because of a saving work by such a high priest that abides. Holy Father, thank you for life that is truly life. Thank you for birthing us and bringing us into this world. And thank you for rebirthing us and bringing us into spiritual life and health and reality. we are grateful. We are grateful for eyes to see and ears to hear. We're grateful for a hope that's in this hard life and beyond it. And we're grateful, Lord, that, hearts that can be hap- for hearts that can be happy um, that, um, that uh, know that you are in and through and beyond all circumstances and that you work all things together for our good because of this Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Happy Mother's Day.